Now, since I saw you last, uh, your hearts and mine have beat, beaten about a hundred thousand times. It's quite amazing to think about it. Just in the 24-hour period that, uh, that has transpired since I left you, that our hearts, on the average, have actually undergone a hundred thousand heartbeats, each one of us. Amazing to think about, right? One a physician once told me that uh, that every one of us has a certain number of heartbeats allotted to him in life. And I'm beginning to think that he was literally correct in that. So uh, in the course of that 24 hours, our hearts have pumped on the average of 2,000 gallons of blood. 2,000 gallons, that's quite a bit. And that's coming from an organ about that big. If you want to know how big your heart is, they say you take your two hands, clasp them together, and that gives you an idea about the size of your heart. Of course, it varies depending on the size of the individual, but then so do the hands. So do the hands, and the average individual, they say, if he clasps his two hands together, that's about the size of his heart. And uh, hearts can range up to close to a pound, but Actually, rarely, rarely do they exceed or even come up to one single pound, and yet they take a pounding. They certainly do. It's quite amazing to think about. When you think about our hearts, and we realize what sacred scripture is, has said about the heart, we realize that uh, it actually is very central to our human way of thinking. You know, uh, the, the, the word itself, the very word heart, is uh, rather significant because it comes to us from all the way down through the centuries from the Proto-Indo-European language. We have in the Teutonic, we have Herz, we have German Herz, we have the English heart. Uh, we also have the uh, the Latin cordia, cores, cor cordis, I should say, cor cordis, C-O-R, cor. And we have the Greek cardia. But all of these words are actually related, even in their pronunciation. It's the same word, basically. Herz uh, and heart and, and uh, cor and cardia. Uh, even according to Grimm's law of uh, consonant shift. You have the hard k and the ch and the and uh, the ha sound. Uh, all of them related. The guttural sounds and even the d and the t at the end of heart and uh, cordis or cardia. You have the Grimm's law of consonant shift there and the tirata, the labials. And uh, so the same word has kind of morphed through all of these languages throughout all of these centuries, going back to some suppose <laughs> proto-Indo-European language, um, which was the origin of all of these. And uh, the word heart has kind of trailed through them all, kind of been a constant through all of those languages. Quite remarkable. So no wonder it is emblematic of the man, a, a kind of a, the great reference point of his character. It's kind of the emblematic of a man's character is what it has become. There are so many other phenomenal things about the heart, but the most phenomenal thing about the human heart is that God has one, is that God actually has a human heart. Phenomenal, supernatural really inconceivable to some that God would actually take a human nature and have a human heart like yours and mine. And that is why the heart of Jesus we refer to as the sacred heart and why we actually worship that with adoration. We actually worship that with adoration. We adore the heart of Jesus Christ because it is substantially united to the word of God who is God himself. It is actually God's own heart. 
It is a heart of flesh, yet it is the divine heart, a heart belonging to the divine person of God's own Son. It is not, therefore, an idol, nor is it merely a symbol. It is really united to the divinity as the heart of a divine person. And it was all a matter of love. What could be more perfectly representative of that love than a beating human heart, which began to beat one day for the sake of being stilled on the cross for us. Now, when we think of uh, the heart of our Lord, you know, I'm asking the question, can we actually enter into the heart of our Lord? Can we become one with his heart? Can we unite our hearts to his? How do we do that? We see the saints themselves who had a great uh, fear of the Lord, which is the first gift of the Holy Ghost. They had a great terror, as it were, of God's justice, not because of his goodness, but because of our wickedness and their own especially. And they had a very refined sense of knowledge of God's justice and therefore a very refined sense of fear of the Lord. And yet when it came to the prospect of dying, leaving this world, and going to, to God, they, they longed for that. How could they have these two seemingly contrary ideas in their minds, uh, a kind of fear, a very refined supernatural fear of the Lord, and yet a longing to see him, and a longing to be with him, even a longing to be judged by him. And the, the uh, gift of fear of the Lord, we have to remember it's just the beginning, because the, the next gift that comes after the fear of the Lord is the gift of piety. Piety has to do with <coughs> a, a respect, which is a growing love for God. A growing love for God that actually takes one all the way to, well, if it's completed, with wisdom, which is the union of our souls and our minds and our hearts, notably our wills, with God's will. That's what wisdom is, you know. So piety, the next step after fear of the Lord, is very important. And that piety begins to overcome in the saints fear, begins to overcome fear. As St. Paul says, rather St. John, St. John says, Perfect love casts out fear. And we saw that happen in the apostles. We saw that happen in all the saints. Perfect love casts out fear. And so we have in the saints, yes, a healthy fear of the justice of God, but there was something that overcame that, something that progressed beyond that. And that was, in fact, a great, a great love, even, even growing into wisdom and hopefully a perfect love for God. The next step, Piety is a major step in that direction. That's where we need to go from fear. We need to go to piety, which is a tremendous reverence, a great reverence for God in all that we do. So actually, as we progress through these gifts of the Holy Ghost, yes, we in fact do make progress in uniting our hearts with the hearts of our Lord. That's the great object. Wisdom is the union of our heart or our will with the heart of Christ, the will of Christ. So the question that comes down to us here is, um, what do we see in our Lord? What do we see in the heart of our Lord but a perfect love for the Father and a will to do the Father's will? That gives us our kind of goal, because if there's one thing that our Lord talked about over and over again, notably at the Last Supper, it's about the Father. Now, each and every one of us here has a unique relationship with his own father. We're all brought up in different ways. Our fathers were all very much individuals. Um, and so between the father and the son, there is always a kind of unique relationship. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's joyful. But nonetheless, there has to be some kind of relationship. But nonetheless, no matter how good or bad, or no matter how traumatic or, or uh, delightful uh, the relationship might be between a father and a son, every one of us longs for a real father. We have a concept of a father, like the perfect father. 
This is true of young, young girls for their, for their fathers, but it's also true of young men. Young men grow up with a sense of longing for a loving father. If they have one, they are blessed. If they don't, they long for it. They long for that. And it all comes from the fatherhood of God. In Ephesians, St. Paul tells us that all fatherhood here on earth is named after the fatherhood of God. It's supposed to be patterned after the fatherhood of God. So it's something in every single one of us. When our Lord speaks to us of the Father and teaches us to call God the Father, our Father, when our Lord tells us that, he wants us to have that relationship. God wants us to have that relationship with us. Well, not that he can have, strictly speaking, philosophically speaking, a relationship because he's infinitely perfect himself. But he wants us to have that relationship with him. He wants us to think of him as our father. Not only to regard him as our father, but to love him as the perfect father. Absolutely perfect father. And so... Uh, this is basically where our prayer should be going. If we're going to unite our prayer with the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to reunite our hearts with the sacred heart of Jesus, that's where we have to go. We have to go to that prayer because so often our Lord himself, well, not often, I would say always, constantly, our Lord's sacred heart was constantly in adoration of the Father. Over and over again, we read in sacred scripture, notably in the Gospels, from the mouth of our Lord, the Father, the Father, I came to do the will of the Father, I came to do the will of him who sent me. Over and over again, our Lord makes it very clear that his mission here is to do the will of the Father. And he loves the Father, and the Father loves him. He glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies him. And so this is the constant message of our Lord. If we're going to go anywhere in prayer, that's where we have to go. If we're going to unite our prayer with the prayer of our Lord, that's where we have to go, into his sacred heart. And we have to unite our hearts with his in that prayer to the Father, realizing that his relationship with the Father is very different from ours. His is that of uh, the only begotten Son of God, but ours is the relationship of grace were adopted by grace but nonetheless the adopted son also addresses his father thinks of him as his father loves him as a father and that's what god is giving us the grace to do so we we find that in uh, our faith we learn about god in theology, we study that. We try to rationally apply our intelligence to know more about God, to see the implications in divine revelation. But an atheist could do this. <laughs> could know the catechism, could study St. Thomas Aquinas, but not believe. But it's one thing to know about God, it's another to know him, as I mentioned. So how do we get to know God? And the answer is inevitably prayer. Only by prayer. Only by prayer. Can we actually get to know God? Other ways we have to know about him? There was no other way to get to know him than by prayer. And in order to get to know God, we have to pray with the saints. But ultimately, we realize that their knowledge of God came through their union of heart with the heart of our Lord, his sacred heart, of their prayer with his prayer. So we back up a little bit and think about this and ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, is this really possible? Is it really possible for us to pray with the Sacred Heart of Jesus? Can we do that? Well, 
You know, when you look in the Gospels, you find something that would indicate it's not possible. But after all, when he, our Lord was asked to teach us how to pray, he said, when you pray, plural, pray this, our Father who art in heaven. And so our Lord was telling us how to pray, and notice it was our, it was plural, so he was giving us the idea of praying in, as a group, together, in a kind of formula, a kind of formula that he taught us, see? But that was not his prayer. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Prayer, but it can't be the Lord's Prayer, because, it, because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, <clears throat> cannot pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so it's impossible that Jesus Christ could pray that prayer because he had no sin. No sin to ask forgiveness for, no sin to have to be forgiven by forgiving others. And so this is the prayer that he taught us to pray. But this was not his prayer. And time and time again, we read in the gospel that our Lord went off to pray he actually separated himself, in a sense. Even when the apostles uh, would go off with him at night into the Mount of Olives, as he would often repair there, or to a mountain, where our Lord would go to pray by night, uh, far away from the, uh, the, from the towns below, the apostles were often left behind to sleep while our Lord would go off to pray. The example of the uh, transfiguration, or the illustration of that, that our Lord had gone off to pray. When the apostles awakened, they, they saw him radiant with light. In fact, the gospel actually says in Greek that not that his garments became white as snow, but that they became as phos, that actually became light itself. That's what awakened them. <laughs> They had been asleep, he had been praying. So time and time again, our Lord would go off to pray himself. He would tell his apostles, pray always. And time and time again, the admonition came, pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Be on guard against temptation, one thing, of the world, and pray be on guard against the things of, the, of the, the, the disordered things of the world and in your own souls and raise your heart and minds to God. That's what our Lord was telling his apostles to do. But when he did it, he would pray with them before meals. We know that. But so often he would opt to pray himself. So is it really possible for us to join in the prayer of Jesus Christ himself? Can we actually pray with, with him? Well, we Catholics understand that prayer varies according to quantity and quality. We have vocal prayer. Vocal prayer is when we use words to pray, or I should say express those words pronounce those words, often involving formulas of prayers given to us. And we can pray a lot that way. We can say a lot of prayers. And even when we don't pronounce them out loud, we can spend a lot of time in, in praying in our minds, but again, using words. And that's where we talk about the quantity of prayer. Does someone pray a lot? Well, we mean by that, how do they say a lot of prayers in terms of the number of prayers they say, or do they pray a lot in terms of the amount of time they spend in prayer? But there's the question of the quality of prayers. And this question of the quality of prayer actually has more to do with the question of whether we can unite our prayers with the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ or not, or whether we are meant to pray alone because our prayers have been are of an entirely different different order from his prayer. When we talk about the quality of prayer, we're asking the question on the level of, is it possible to pray more powerfully? 
not to pray more quantitatively, but to pay, pray more qualitatively and have a more powerful prayer. And what can be more powerful than a prayer united with the prayer of the Son of God himself? Is it possible? Well, you know, the church herself teaches us to unite our prayers with the prayers of the saints, after all. I mean, the church does tell us that we can actually enlist saints to pray with us. We can join our prayers to their, their prayers of adoration in heaven. Our prayers tend to be rather paltry. Uh, the saints in heaven love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They do. They fulfill the first great commandment. You and I don't here. We can take it for granted we don't. To say that we did love God with all of our hearts and minds and souls and strength, that would be the height of pride and arrogance to think that we're that holy. None of us would claim to love God with a perfect love. And so when we unite our meager prayers with the prayers of the saints in heaven, we realize we're, we're taking our very, shall we say, imperfect or impure prayers motivated by a partial love for God and trying to unite them with the choirs of the angels in heaven and by the saints in heaven and their perfect prayers to God, perfect prayers of adoration. We can still do it, though. God allows us to do that. But at equally admirably, perhaps in some ways even more admirably, God allows us to enlist the saints to pray with us. Sometimes we talk about the saints praying for us. We ask the saints, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. And we have the litany of the saints. We have the litany of our Blessed Mother. We have the litany of St. Joseph. And we're saying, pray for us, pray for us. Do we mean that? Yes, so oh, yes, we mean that. We're asking them to pray for us at the throne of heaven, even now. But in a sense, we have to realize more clearly what we're saying there. We're not only asking the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph and the rest of the saints to pray for us. We're also asking them to pray with us because we're not asking them to pray as substitutes for us, as if to say, well, pray for me so I don't have to. In other words, if you will pray for me, then I'll leave the praying to you. But that doesn't work that way, and we know it doesn't work that way. In other words, what we're really asking for is this. We're asking them to pray with us. We're asking, we're saying, I'm praying for this. I'm going to God for this, and I need you to come with me, and I need you to support me in this prayer. I need you to add your prayers to my own prayer. Now, there you have a more powerful prayer. There you're increasing the quality of prayer because you're bringing with your prayer also all of those in heaven you pray to, whose prayers you're invoking, to stand with you and to endorse your meager, imperfect prayers with their own loving prayers. Imagine having our Blessed Mother's prayer endorsing your prayer, St. Joseph's prayer endorsing your prayer in heaven. But they're not a substitute. You can't say, Blessed Mother, pray for me so I don't have to. I know if you pray for me, that's all that matters. And or... Uh, St. Joseph, go, go ask God something for me because uh, my prayer is imperfect and I'm not even going to bother. But your prayer is perfect now because of your love for God and that's all I need. So you just go pray for me in the sense of pray, in a sense almost up without me. That's obviously not the meaning of this. You have to be praying also and you're asking the prayer of the saints to join you in prayer. What does our Lord say to his apostles? He says that, uh, and that this is at the Last Supper, he tells them that they will be able to go to the Father. He says, I will no longer ask the Father for you. I will no longer ask the Father for you, he says, because you can ask the Father for yourselves. You have access to the Father's. I've mentioned this to you before. You know it. Our Lord has said it to you every year. Every year he said this to you in the sacred liturgy. And the reason why you have access to the Father and you can go to the Father and pray directly to the Father is because you love Jesus Christ, because you love his Son. As our Lord said, the Father, you, you can go to the Father and ask him yourself because the Father himself loves you. And our Lord says, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And so to the extent that you go, to speak to the Father, and you can, and you must, 
you go in the name of Jesus Christ. And your love for his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is what prompts the Father to love you and to listen to you. Take seriously what you say, what you pray to him. And so when you do pray, we, we always pray, uh, as we say, in the name of the Father and of the Son. We pray in the name of the Son. We go to the Father in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And with that name, with that name of our Lord Jesus Christ and our love for him, we have, we have access to the Father. We actually have an entry key. We have an entry key, in a sense, for our prayers to enter into heaven and go right to God the Father himself. So in what sense do we pray to saints? Well, we mentioned this last year already, and I think it's important for us to be very much aware of it because it's an apologetics question. There are so many Protestants out there who do not understand Catholics praying, praying to saints because they have no sense of what, how we see and how we conceive heaven. And how could they? I mean, their own Martin Luther taught them that heaven, that the saints in heaven are nothing but snow-covered dunghills. That's all they are. Uh, they still remain dung uh, spiritually, and yet they are covered with a kind of a, a layer of snow, which is the grace of God and the the, uh, the redemption of Christ, which kind of masks them. This obviously is not what our Lord said. He wants us to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Our Lord didn't even say, be perfect as I am perfect. Our Lord didn't stop there. He didn't say that. He said, be heavenly, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. How is it possible? Well, to receive the life of grace, to receive the life of sanctifying grace into the soul, that's what makes it possible. Protestants don't believe in sanctifying grace. They don't believe it's possible. They don't even believe in sanctification. <clears throat> that the human soul can be redeemed in the sense that it can be changed, in the sense that it can be elevated, in the sense that it can be sanctified. They don't believe that. But we know it's true. It's true by the power of Christ. And the mission for each and every one of us here is to uh, go to the Father through our Lord and unite our hearts to the heart of Jesus Christ in prayer. But if our Lord went off to pray by himself, how is it that we can unite our hearts with him and not only ask the saints to pray with us, but that we actually have access to pray with the sacred heart of Jesus? I mean, that's the ultimate goal of all. That's what takes us to mental prayer, the importance of mental prayer. You know, when we pray, we're, we have four great goals. Talked about this before. It's something we always have to keep in mind, though. In every prayer and every sacrifice that we offer to, to Almighty God, we have to have, first and foremost in mind, the adoration and worship of God. The adoration and worship of God is the supreme being, our supreme being, our creator, our redeemer. We worship God as worthy of all, of all love and all perfection. Indeed, we worship him as the God of the first commandment who deserves all of our, the love of all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And even that is infinitely inferior to what he really deserves. But we, as creature, have all that we can give. And the marvelous thing is, he's very pleased with that. So that's actually the first goal of every prayer and of every sacrifice. Then we have to recognize the fact that we, there were times when we did not worship God, and we did not honor him, we sinned. And so the second purpose of prayer, of course, is to ask forgiveness, seek forgiveness by acts of contrition, reparation. The third purpose of prayer is thanksgiving. We acknowledge the benefits that God has given to us, all of his spiritual benefits, the graces that he's given to us. We acknowledge the earthly blessings he's given to us. We acknowledge the very existence he's given to us. We thank him for all of this, everything we've received. And that means all that we have that is of good has come from him. And we thank him for that. Now, those first three purposes of prayer and sacrifice, we don't offer to any saint. We don't offer such prayers to any saint. In fact, we 
offer to saints only the fourth level, fourth degree of prayer, you might say, the fourth intention of that is supplication. And all that we're actually doing when, we, when we're addressing saints is asking them, as I say, to join their prayers, their heavenly prayers, with our own prayers. <coughs> so in that sense, Catholics do pray to, to saints. And they pray only in, the, in that way. And you need to be able to be very clear on that yourself to understand how that is, so that you can explain it to others who are very confused about it. That this is what Catholics mean when we say we pray saints. We ask them to join us in the prayer of supplication to God. Now, um, if we can join the prayers of the mystical body together, of the saints in heaven, and we join our prayers even for the benefit of the souls in purgatory, that all of these can join together in prayer to God. If they are indeed the mystical body of Christ, then you'd think, yes, they must all be united with the prayer of Jesus Christ. They must all be united with his prayer. They must all be united with the prayer of his sacred heart. And that brings us to the matter of praying with Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the question of mental prayer. Is there such a thing as prayer that is not mental prayer? Well, actually, it's impossible to indulge in non-mental prayer because non-mental prayer wouldn't be prayer at all, would it? So in a sense, every prayer has to be mental prayer if it's going to be prayer at all. After all, St. Augustine has defined prayer for us. He told us very beautifully that prayer is the raising of our minds and our hearts to God. The raising of our minds and hearts to God. Now, how can you have a prayer that raises your heart and mind to God, but it's not mental prayer? So by definition, every prayer has to be mental prayer. But the church makes a distinction between what they call, well, maybe the best way to look at it is, uh, so another, another apologetics question, one that has come up to me in convert instruction, uh, the difference between public prayer and private prayer. You know, when you have a Protestant uh, dinner or you have something like that, they'll have Pastor Bob from Ebenezer Baptist Church stand up and Everybody stands and looks down, puts his head down, and Pastor Bob then says words of prayer that evidently he's kind of making up as he goes along. And there, it's his prayer, but he's leading everybody in prayer. At the end, everybody says amen. And that's pretty much as much public prayer as you're going to get outside of the churches. They, they don't necessarily go in for formulaic prayers. Uh, formulas being like Catholics do. We have a lot of formula prayers where we all know the words and we can say them together. And that we call public prayer when we're actually uniting not only our minds and our hearts, but we're actually uniting our voices in prayer. Uh, Protestants do this. They, they do it mostly in song. Um, they, they will sing, obviously, uh, stanzas of, of uh, verses of songs that they know by heart. And that is a form of public prayer, too, where everybody's united together and offering the same prayer. It's using the same words. But we Catholics, we have a lot of public prayer. And uh, our public prayer, for example, the rosary, is very public. Protestants are puzzled by the rosary somewhat because uh, they hear all these words. And um, they have a kind of antipathy toward this, of course, because of our Blessed Mother. They have this kind of prejudice against her, <clears throat> as though Catholics somehow worship her in place of God, which is quite the contrary. It's not the case at all. It's not only one of those things that is not true, it's the exact opposite of the truth. And that is we, we venerate her because of her veneration of our Lord. We love her because of her love for our Lord. Catholics understand that there is such a thing as worship and there's such a thing as veneration. And worship we call latria, L-A-T-R-I-A. 
or Latria, as some say. And Latria is worship, and that goes to God alone. There is no Latria offered to any other being than the Supreme Being, whom we know as Almighty God. And uh, any other form of veneration we offer uh, to any creature is Dulia. And Dulia, D-U-L-I-A, um, is not worship, it's a veneration. Uh, we offer to our Blessed Mother a special form of Dulia called hyper, hyperdulia, because of her special connection with our Lord himself as the Mother of God. But even that is simply a form of super veneration. It is not worship. <coughs> so when we pray the rosary, we're not worshiping Mary. Actually, we are honoring Mary because God honored her. It's simple as that. And we love Mary because she loved God, and she loves him with all her heart and soul and mind and strength, and we, we love her love for our Lord. And that's what we show when we pray. But uh, we're trying to unite our, our heart to her hearts because, as the Scripture says, and the Protestants say they all believe in Scripture, although they do and they don't, <laughs> um, the, the Gospel tells us that Mary kept all these things in her heart, the matters of the life of Jesus, as though he was living his life in her heart, and she recorded that. His entire life from beginning to end was recorded in her immaculate heart. And so when we pray the rosary, we're actually trying to see the life of our Lord through the heart of Mary. We're trying to live the life of our Lord with the Blessed Mother as she lived the life of our Lord in her own heart. And so we are actually uniting ourselves in prayer with her. And it says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She pondered these things in her heart. And that, again, that gives you a sense of mental prayer or meditation, that Mary actually had led a life of meditation. And it was a life of meditation on the Lord Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection. Now, what can be better for us than to um, live that life with her, to pray that prayer with her, to unite our hearts with hers? So there is the public prayer, but remember now, when we say the public prayers together, uh, pronouncing human words of human language, uh, we are using formulas that were actually given to us originally by God himself. Uh, the, the words of the rosary, as you know very well, were given to us by God in divine revelation. Uh, we know that the, our Father was taught to us directly by our Lord, uh, from his mouth to our ears, uh, the words of the Our Father. The Hail Mary actually was, you might say, even more wonderfully, in a way, given by God the Father, who sent the angel Gabriel with those words to address the Blessed Mother Mary, which was the key to the incarnation of our God's Son. So, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. This is a message from God the Father. When we say the Hail Mary, that's what, that's what we're saying. Repeating that message from God the Father to Our Lady. And um, a source of enormous joy for her and all mankind, really. And, of course, the Gloria Patri is the, uh, the doxology, giving honor and praise and worship to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. We, again, we find this acclamation of this doxology, dox meaning glory in Greek, the speaking of glory to God. It's an act of adoration. Uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. These words also we find revealed to us in sacred scripture. So when you pray the rosary, you really are praying the scriptures. You're not only praying the words of scripture, but you're thinking the thoughts of scripture because you're, as it were, reliving and pondering over in your heart the, the mysteries of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord. Uh, from the moment that he is conceived until the moment that he receives the Blessed Mother into heaven and glorifies her. So uh, that's a great prayer. And uh, there are those who do not pray it, they simply say it, and they find it very sterile because they don't put anything into it. They just say the words hoping that somehow magically they'll get something out of it. And they do, even if they're willing to just give God the time to say the words. Yes, there will be something. But it will be like a, through a strainer. 
And if they are willing to actually put their minds into it and make it real prayer, mental prayer, raising their hearts, raising their minds to God in mental prayer in the rosary, then they will thrive and they will come to love the rosary. It'll become almost second nature to them. They'll find themselves, in a sense, even praying the decades of the rosary during the day without him realizing it, perhaps. It just becomes so, so natural to them once they enter into it and turn it into prayer. Just saying the words of the Our Father and Hail Mary and Glory Be to the Father. Well, um, is there any benefit to that? Well, yes, if, even if there's just kind of a reluctant devotion saying, well, this is what God wants me to do, so I guess I better do it. But is it even prayer if it's not mental? If their mind and their heart is not turned to God, they're not mindful of God, they're not mindful of the mysteries, they're not mindful of um, a loving Savior whom they, in turn, should love and do. If, if none of that is involved, and it's just a matter of making noises, is there any benefit to it? Well, there would be this benefit, that they say this much, even out of just fear of the Lord. Well, this is what I've been told to do, this is what I should do, I know, and I'm going to do it, although uh, I find it very empty and I don't enjoy it and I don't seem to get anything out of it, but this is what God wants me to do, so this is what I'm going to do. Is there any benefit to that? Yes, there is, certainly. Um, at least it's a matter of saying, this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it, even if I'm not even sure why. <laughs> um, there's a start. There's already a start there, at least some respect for God. But we hope that it would only be a beginning. I mean, you'd hope it would develop from there to the point where they begin to actually turn their attention to the mysteries of the rosary, turn their attention to their, their Savior, turn their attention to their Savior's attention to the Father, actually, go on beyond that to the Father himself. I mean, when we ponder the words and actions of our Lord, we're pondering his service, his service of the Father. All that our Lord did was to refer our minds and our hearts to, to God the Father. So that's where, ultimately, the rosary should take us, and we hope it does. But it can't take us there dragging, kicking, and screaming, dragging us kicking and screaming if we don't want to go. So if we won't allow it to be prayer, if we won't allow our hearts and minds to be raised, there's very little God can do for us if we resist. But that we have, that's where we have public prayer, okay? Um, and we can pray it privately in ourselves, in our minds, but it bring, it still uses words, and it still um, brings together the formula prayers with the mental prayer of meditation. So the rosary is actually meant to be a kind of almost transitional prayer from a beginner to an advanced stage, where it actually brings us from the level of just saying prayers by formula to the level of being able to meditate on the mysteries of God. So the rosary is meant to elevate some out of, someone out of that level of being merely a spiritual neophyte, like a spiritual almost uh, apprentice, to begin to know how to pray mental prayer, how to meditate. Now, there is a, uh, a very nice book, booklet written that I would refer you to and uh, recommend to you that uh, you can obtain from, I think, well, Tan Books, I guess. You might have kind copies of it still available. It's called The Catechism of Mental Prayer, an actual catechism of mental prayer. And it is the work of a very Reverend Joseph Simler, S-I-M-L-E-R. He was the Superior General of the Society of Mary. This uh, Catechism of Mental Prayer was published in 1984, rather interesting date. And um, in its uh, title page, it says, it quotes St. Teresa of Avila. And this was just what she said. The devil knows that he has lost the soul that perseveringly practices mental prayer. The devil knows that he has lost the soul that 
perseveringly practices mental prayer. So you don't have to be uh, a great theologian to interpret those words of St. Teresa as saying that one who perseveringly practices mental prayer has actually basically escaped the devil's reach in a way. Curiously enough. Now in this Catechism of Mental Prayer, where we start talking about the actual idea of raising our hearts and minds to God, um, we, we, he asks very simple questions and gives very direct answers, as you would expect in a catechism. This, this uh, Catechism of Mental Prayer, by the way, is somewhat close to us here in Cincinnati because it carries the imprimatur of the Archbishop of Cincinnati, Enricus Miller, now, Moeller, we have Moeller High School here, named after that Archbishop of Cincinnati. So it, uh, it actually comes kind of close to home for us here in Cincinnati to have this uh, imprimatur uh, on this, the front of this catechism. But uh, the preface says this little catechism is a substantial summary of the guide of the man of goodwill in the exercise of mental prayer. And that's by very Reverend uh, Joseph Simler again. And uh, just to take you through the first few questions, or the first several questions of his catechism here, give you an idea of the, the flavor of it, what he has to say. Uh, on the nature of mental prayer, he says, what is prayer? He says, prayer is the elevation of our soul toward God to render him our homage the elevation of the soul to God. He says, how does the soul elevate itself toward God? And he says that the soul elevates itself toward God by thinking of him, loving him, and conversing with him. So these are the three things, he says, in this catechism of mental prayer that constitute prayer at all. Thinking of God, loving him, and conversing with him. Now, St. Augustine's definition of prayer to raise your mind and your heart to God. Well, mind, yes, that's thinking of God, giving, paying your attention to God, and uh, raising your heart to God, making an act of love for God. So there you give God your attention and you give God your affections. But here, uh, Reverend Simler says, but there's also the matter of conversing with God. And that's where you get into the level of mental prayer, a kind of conversing with God. And the third question he asks is, what kind of homage should we render to God? Well, if we're going to do this for the sake of rendering homage to God, he says, there are four kinds. And these are the ones that I told you before. Adoration or worship is the first and highest of all. Then contrition for sin. And then thanksgiving to God for his blessings. And then petition or supplication for more blessings. So those are the four things, he says, we should pay to God as homage. He says, how many kinds of prayer are there? That's when he says there are, there's vocal prayer and mental prayer. And now, uh, just to make a distinction here, I want to say, you know, when you talk about vocal prayer, you might think, well, this is prayer using words, and mental prayer is, is prayer that does not use words. Well, we think in terms of words, you know. So it's hard to express ourselves without using words. So you say mental prayer is prayer without words, but wait a minute. Very Reverend Simler just said that the prayer is a conversation with God. How do you have a conversation without words? So there's kind of a false dichotomy here between vocal prayer and mental prayer. One thinks of it as saying, well, where one you use words and the other you don't use words, because that's not true. Even in mental prayer, you still use words. It's very clear from reading the saints on mental prayer that they used words when they were involved in mental prayer. It's just, you see, in mental prayer, there, there are two, two kind of categories here, which not everybody expresses, but they're there. You have vocal prayer and mental prayer, but mental prayer also, we often mean meditation. And meditation uses words. Sometimes meditation uses lots and lots of words. Sometimes meditation, the methods they give you for meditation are so complicated that 
the sheer number of words they're trying to give you, like a manual of meditation with all the method you're supposed to use, is kind of overwhelming. But there's another kind of, of, of mental prayer that actually goes beyond the words and leaves the words behind. And that's contemplation. There's meditation and there's contemplation. And contemplation is beyond words. As you might say, one is a conversation with our Lord, and the other is an actual meeting with our Lord where you're just enjoying the presence of God, really, which is beyond words, you know. Something that doesn't need words to express it. And ultimately, it's contemplation that is the goal of meditation. If, if the, the goal of vocal prayer is to lead you into meditation so you can learn to meditate, well, the goal of meditation is going to be to lead you into contemplation where you can just be wrapped with the, with the thought of God and his beauty and his perfections. You know? It's not the vision of God. In fact, uh, as, I'm, as I read this here, you're going to see that uh, very reverend similar talks about, he uses two words. He uses the word like having an audience with God and having an interview with God. And the, the selection of those two words is rather interesting because when you have an audience with someone, it comes from audio, which is hearing. So you're, you're hearing, so that involves a certain exchange, conversation. But interview has something more of a connotation of just beholding, beholding something, not, not an audible communication, but just seeing something that is perhaps even inexpressible in words. You know? Is that necessary to die to see that? No. St. Paul was alive. He said he was wrapped in the third heaven. And what he had could not be expressed. What he saw there could not be expressed. Not in human words. Kind of contemplation. You know. There are saints who were wrapped in that. That's really the goal of everyone. Ultimately, finally. Ultimately in heaven. But possible here on earth to begin that. To begin that kind of prayer. He goes on and he says, what is meant by vocal prayer? He says vocal prayer, and he doesn't say that vocal prayer is just prayer with words. I'm glad he didn't say that. He said by vocal prayer is meant every prayer performed by means of a given formula. So in a sense, it's kind of scripted prayer. Script, script means written. You know, scripture is sacred scripture written, the written revelation of God. So a script is not a bad thing, you know. When you pray, it's nice to have kind of a script. Our Lord has given us in the uh, Our Father, and uh, God the Father gave us in the Hail Mary, a kind of script to follow in Scripture. And we follow those prayers. So it's not just a matter of, of words. It's a, a scripted thing that we can all pray together. We can all join our hearts and our voices together in these prayers. He says, why are such prayers called vocal prayers? He says, they are so-called because ordinarily the voice is used in reciting them. So they are articulated, they are expressed by using the voice. But he says then, what is meant by mental prayer? And he says, my mental prayer is meant every prayer performed without aid of any particular formula. So you think that, okay, so mental prayer then, he says, is a prayer a particular type of prayer that doesn't use a formula. So you might say, well, that means it's kind of spontaneous. And the answer is, well, actually, yes. It is spontaneous. Uh, produced by us. Produced by grace. Produced by us under the influence of grace. A movement of the heart, a movement of the soul towards God by giving him our attention and our affection. But without any particular formula. So... He asked, then, why is this kind of prayer called mental prayer? He says, it's that way because it, it is made by the mind, generally without any articulation of words. Articulation of words. And he says, ordinarily, we think of it as meditation. Actually, it goes far beyond that, ultimately, though. So he asked the question, then, in what does mental prayer essentially consist. 
So mental prayer essentially consists in thinking of God or of holy things with the intention, at least virtually, of rendering God our homage. Thus, every pious thought, every pious desire is a mental prayer. We talked about the gift of piety, and this is where you can begin your mental prayer. When you get beyond the mere fear of the Lord and you get to piety and a reverence for God, beginning a real love for God, you can actually begin to engage in mental prayer because now you have a heart to live to God. Now you can raise your heart to God with love. And so he talks about every pious thought you have as being a form of mental prayer. It's not scripted. It just comes spontaneously by grace. Every pious desire that is according to the will of God, and because it is the will of God that you desire it, is a mental prayer. So you've been engaging in mental prayer all this time, not even aware of it necessarily. Give, give a man, give a more complete definition of mental prayer. And here's where he goes a little more extensive, a deeper explanation of it. He says, mental prayer is a pious communication of the soul with God by means of considerations, affections, resolutions. Three things he says, considerations of the mind, affections of the heart, resolutions of the will. He says its object is to make us know, love, and serve God better. But you know, that's the very answer to the question, why did God make you? That's the very answer to the question, why did God make you? You learned that when you were making your first Holy Communion. And he ties it in with this whole point. He says, this is the objective of mental prayer. He says, its object is to make us know, love, and serve God better, and to promote the knowledge of ourselves and the faithful discharge of our duties. In practice, therefore, it is the art of becoming better, better man, a better Catholic man, a better Catholic gentleman, a better Catholic father, a better Catholic husband. All of these things. And then he asked the question, is mental prayer necessary? He says it is. He says, mental prayer in its essence is necessary for every Christian who wishes to be saved. Now you may think, wow, everybody who wants to save his soul has got to indulge in mental prayer. He says, absolutely. There is no other prayer that is not mental prayer. Even if you're expressing words, the Our Father and Hail Mary, if your attention and your affection are not, not engaged, you're not praying. You might as well be a parrot or a tape recorder. You can teach a, a bird to say the words, the Our Father and Hail Mary. There's no prayer there. So your mind and your heart have to be engaged for there to be any real prayer. Your, your attention and your affection have to be directed to God. Even just your attention, if you're aware of God, that's not prayer. There has to be involved an effective part of actual love for God, for there to be actual prayer there. I mean, one could blaspheme and curse God. He's very mindful of God, but there's no love God. There's no there. It's not prayer. It's quite the antithesis of prayer, isn't it? So ultimately, what makes prayer prayer is being mindful of God and making an act of love for him. So we ask the question, is mental prayer as a, a, an exercise of any particular excellence? He says, yes, mental prayer is most excellent, not merely by reason of its necessity, but also on account of its advantages and because it is most honorable for us. And he says, name some of the advantages. Well, he says, it keeps sin far away from us. It will ultimately save us from hell because he unites us with God. It preserves us from lukewarmness or cures us of lukewarmness. He says, it's the common source of all the virtues. I think he should have made that number one. The common source of all the virtues because it's the common object, the virtues of, of God himself are the, actually the common object of all the mental prayer. Um, when you say, well, why do I love God? It's because of his goodness. Well, when we're talking about goodness, we're talking about virtues, aren't we? And that's the object of our love. 
Why is mental prayer such a great honor for us? He says because it's like having an audience with God. An audience with God in medication, meditation, and a, an interview with God, you might say, in, uh, in contemplation. He asks if mental prayer is difficult. He said it's only difficult insofar as we make it difficult because of, well, this gets us back to our passions, right? The passions, which are the sensual affections here on earth, are the things of the earth. The affection, the things of the senses, that is, that has to be overcome. The imagination, the sensory imagination has to be overcome. So we need to overcome that in order to pray well, truly. Uh, when we reconvene here, I'm sorry, uh, I've actually gone in an hour. When we reconvene, I want to move beyond that. And I want to actually get into the question of how to do this. How to overcome the obstacles and actually make mental prayer real. So that's where we're going next time. So let's pray and be on our way.